Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC senior congressional correspondent Mary Bruce. And it's quite a scene over in England with President Trump um, getting all of the royal treatment, very explicitly, puns intended, uh, over over with, with a series of conversations. He inserted himself in British politics while he's uh, overseas and uh, gotten some pushback on that. But the main story that he is uh, that he's fighting back home is a is a battle being waged inside his own party with people inside his own party over this threat of new tariffs on Mexico. And Mary Bruce, uh, this is this is a movie in some ways we've seen before. The president says something, uh, maybe something outrageous. Republicans balk at it, threaten to block it. What do we where does this one end, we think? This one does have a slightly different feeling to it, though, Rick. I have to say, I think, you know, the president is used to Republicans generally being on his side, you know, standing by him ultimately when push comes to shove. And this is some pretty serious pushback that the president is getting up here, perhaps more than he's used to, more than he may have ever gotten from his own party on an issue. Republicans do not want the president to impose these tariffs on Mexico. They are making that loud and clear But it doesn't seem that that message is necessarily being received. Um, The president, based on what he said in a a press conference uh, over in London, seems pretty intent on moving forward with this plan. Uh, It is not clear where this ends. It's not even clear really what exactly the president is demanding from Mexico right now. Right. It's not clear what steps they would have to take to try and stop uh, this flow of migration in order for the president to stave off these tariffs. But what is clear is that Republicans are pretty unified against him on this issue. They say this amounts to a massive tax. They're concerned about what it would mean for American consumers and businesses. They're also concerned, by the way, about what it might mean for the president's new uh, trade deal, the new USMCA trade deal, that that could be in jeopardy because of this. And they're making it clear, look, if the president does go through with this, they are willing to take steps to stop him. And there's a big uh, a big test of the president's theory that, that trade wars are easy to win. He's got to win this war inside his own party. Take a listen to what he said um, earlier this week alongside the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. Mexico shouldn't allow millions of people to try and enter our country. And they could stop it very quickly. And I think they will. And if they won't, we're going to put tariffs on. And every month those tariffs go from 5% to 10% to 15% to 20 and then to 25%. And what will happen then is all of those companies that have left our country and gone to Mexico are going to be coming back to us. And that's okay. And Mary, this, of course, conflates border policy with trade policy and potentially jeopardizes the the economy and American consumers. The president talks about tariffs in a in a in a fairly fact free way, Mary. I think we've seen that with the China tariffs as well. The people that pay these tariffs, of course, are American consumers. And this could have a real impact on the economy. But the idea of tying trade policy uh, and this economic side of things to border policy is something that has a lot of Republicans that you've been catching up with uh, pretty upset. They're furious. Uh, this sort of goes against all you know Republican orthodoxy here. This is not something that they think should be tampered with. And it is a bizarre threat, right? This is sort of a bizarre stick for the president to be using to try and spur some kind of action on the immigration issue. But that's what he's doing, right? We've seen the president over and over again. Uh, he likes to govern and try and you know incite action via threat. Uh, the question is whether this one will work. And I think in some ways, I suspect you had a lot of Republicans coming out earlier this week sort of threatening themselves that they 
would block the president if he took these steps, hoping that would get him to back off. Well, he doesn't seem to be backing off at all. Um, and there is sort of this this high stakes uh, meeting that's happening this afternoon. Of course, the, the, the vice president and the secretary of state are going to be sitting down uh, with the Mexican foreign minister and, and other delegates trying to figure out if they can sort of find a way out of this. Um, and Republicans that I've been out speaking here with in the hallways of the Capitol this morning are optimistic and hopeful that it doesn't come down to, to tariffs because it really puts Republicans in a strange position of having to, to issue what would be a pretty dramatic rebuke to the president. Well, listen to Mitch McConnell. I mean, this is a guy we, we've covered him for years. We've both interviewed him a bunch of times. We know that he chooses his words very carefully. Listen to this. Well, there is uh, not much support in my conference for tariffs, that's for sure. I think it's safe to say you've talked to all of our members. We're not fans of tariffs. We're still hoping that this can be avoided. At the same time, it's way past time the president's request for assistance from our government be met. So that is McConnell trying again to just remind the president he's on his side sometimes, but not on this one. Not yeah, let, on let me decipher one. Mitch McConnell speak for you. A, that's Mitch McConnell pretty fired up. <laughs> if you're not used to listening to him over and over again, that's as feisty as Mitch McConnell gets. And he is also sending a message. It is very blatant. That is him saying to the president, do not do this. Listen up. Republicans in your own party are saying we don't want to do this. And you're going to force us to stand up to you on this issue. Don't go there, Mr. President. Yeah. Don't go there, Mr. President, because he's talked to his own members on this and and they realize that there's a lot at stake in, in all of this. And the president could be gambling a, a good portion of his political base as well as his presidency on all of this. Now, I, as I said earlier, Mayor, we've seen it before where the president goes and threatens something uh, and then and then has the pushback. And, and ultimately, it's dialed back. We remember the resolution of disapproval. We, we know that this president sometimes just says things. In fact, listen to Chuck Schumer's take on all of this. If past his prologue, he makes these threats and then he backs off when he sees the danger. I have a feeling that this one just popped into his head. Yeah, and of course, the president disagrees with that, and he's attacking Chuck Schumer on on, on Twitter. But he, he kind of has a point. There's a pattern here where the president sometimes says something that is not a fully baked proposal, um, gets some kind of action. As you point out, we don't know what the Mexicans have to do to even get out of this, uh, but uh, but but the pushback ends up ends up being incorporated into what the response is. And maybe he was serious, maybe he wasn't. And I think, you know, privately, that's probably what a lot of Republicans are banking on, right? That this is the president making a threat to try and get everyone to the table to negotiate, to work something out. But is he really going to follow through on it? Well, Republicans don't know, because as you mentioned, the president, you know, we have seen this before many times. Uh, the line I keep hearing over and over again this morning is, look, it's Wednesday, not Monday. The president, <laughs> uh, when he did make remarks, said, seemed to suggest that he is going to follow through with this come Monday. But as we know, that's uh, that's a long time from now, especially in this political world especially with the president overseas focused on other important matters. So the Hill is sort of in a wait and see mode. But just the way in which Republicans are fired up about this uh, is something that we haven't really seen up here before. And it complicates 2020 uh, calculations as well, because there are a number of big battleground states that are directly impacted by tariffs like this. Um, there are, of course, senators running for re-election in some of these states as well on the Republican side that are very, very, very cautious in watching all of this because they realize how it could backfire. And I think there's a smart, a smart point made by Senator Rob Portman, who's a former U.S. trade representative, about how this fits with the president's broader agenda or really what's left of his broader agenda in Congress. 
you don't want to not do this USMCA. That, that's a really important agreement. This is the new NAFTA. And it's, it's right on the cusp right now. You know, it's the president's top legislative priority, I was told a couple of weeks ago. And I think he's endangering it by saying, okay, yeah, we negotiated this agreement on trade, but now we're going to raise tariffs, which is exactly the heart of the trade issue. So I think it's going to be tough. Somehow the White House has been saying this is not at all connected to USMCA. Uh, there, Rob Portman, former U.S. trade rep, Republican senator from Ohio saying that's just not the case. Yeah, Republicans are deeply concerned that these tariffs on Mexico could derail essentially the president's new trade deal. And that's a huge part of the president's agenda. As you mentioned, it's something he would like to run on. It's something other Republicans would like to run on. And I think it's also a, a smart political argument Republicans think to be making up here as they try to dissuade the president from doing this to point out that, hey, you're on the cusp of, of achieving this accomplishment. Do you really want to to send that all, you know, send that all going haywire over over these tariffs. Uh, and so we've been talking about Senate Republicans. Let's switch over to the other side of the building and the other party and talk about House Democrats. Because, Mary, uh, the pressure has been building for some time now on the on the I word, on impeachment. Uh, there are some new plans afoot that would stop considerably short of that. I thought it was notable that Jim Clyburn, the number three House Democrat, uh, said over the weekend that he thought impeachment was inevitable, that it was going to happen. He's walked that back a little bit. Uh, but how is Nancy Pelosi and, and the team on the House side handling the growing calls for impeachment of President Trump? Yeah, you're continuing to see this pressure slowly grow on Democratic leaders. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others have been sort of bending over backwards to reiterate that their position is that it is not time to be rushing to impeachment, that instead what they need to be doing is carefully building a compelling case against the president. Right. Pelosi says that that case has to be ironclad. And there are two reasons for that. One is that she knows if if impeachment is ever going to be successful, you have to get Republicans in the Senate on board, which is an incredibly tall order. And, And number two is that they want to feel that there's a certain amount of public buy-in. If they're going to take the extraordinary move to impeach a sitting president, they want to feel that the public is on their side. To do that, though, Democrats feel that there needs to be a public airing Uh, shall we say, of the findings of the Mueller report. Democrats were hoping that that would come in the form of a big blockbuster hearing with the special counsel. Well, last week, it became pretty clear that Robert Mueller has zero intention of coming up here and giving them that kind of public airing of his findings. And so instead, Democrats are having to go to plan B. And that is why starting Monday, you're going to be seeing these hearings um, with attorneys and other key players of their even bringing up a uh, political star from another political scandal in another era, uh, John Dean is coming up to speak about uh, his experience uh, with with the Watergate scandal and also his take on the Mueller report, because what they're trying to do is get out in the open, get out in the public as much as they can about the Mueller report to try and build that public support. Yeah. And it's interesting. John Dean, um, a voice from another era, still quite active in public life as the former Nixon White House counsel, um, is a powerful voice in this debate talking about the Mueller report in Mueller's absence. On a slightly different track, you have um, censure votes now scheduled for um, mm-hmm. top administration officials, including the Attorney General uh, Attorney General Barr, that, that I, I, I feel like might provide something of a roadmap for what Democrats are thinking of as a, a middle ground. But I, I guess it raises the question to me, Mary, whether there is middle ground on this question. Can you be half pregnant when it comes to impeachment? Uh, yeah. Can you can you say it's 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 like impeachment if it is an impeachment? All this talk about opening proceedings, but not necessarily voting on articles of impeachment. Is it too cute by half to say yeah. we're doing all these things, but we're not doing the big thing? Well, and that's what some of Democrats who are calling for impeachment say. Look, if you're going to do it, 
just do it right. Um, I've I've had several top Democrats say that to me that that basically what they're doing is impeachment by another name. And so if you're going to be taking these steps, why not just make it official and go all in? Um, That's also, of course, the criticism that you get from Republicans who will say, look, Democrats, they may not be calling it impeachment, but that's certainly what they're doing. And so Democrats are stuck in certain ways. They want to be methodical about this. They want to follow the facts. That's the phrase you'll hear over and over and over again from Nancy Pelosi. But they also want to show that they are taking some steps to hold this administration accountable, especially in the face of what Democrats Democrats feel is just blatant stonewalling by this administration. And they also want to take steps to show that they're trying to appease the members, the now more than 50 members of the Democratic uh, caucus who are calling for impeachment. And that's why I think you're seeing them take the extraordinary step to hold the attorney general in contempt, um, a vote that you're going to see uh, early next week, and to hold others in contempt as well, uh, the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, and, and all of these other measures that they're trying to take even though realistically, we all know that, that these contempt votes you know, aren't going to change the president's stonewalling. It's not going to change the debate. It's not going to get Democrats the information that they want any sooner. But it lets them show that they're serious about this fight. And they know that the president may want these fights. He, he, yeah. he, I think it's a still a, a good, a good, solid piece of political analysis to say that no one wants, to, wants impeachment to happen more than the president because he knows how the movie ends. And he could say he was exonerated once again. And he sees it as a 2020 issue at a time where he is increasingly liberated on the international and on the national affairs stage. He sees these Democrats and he, he would love to see them engage in something that could be interpreted as as overreach. And Pelosi knows that. I mean, it's why she cautions and warns over and over again that the president is trying to goad them into impeachment. There is deep concern among Democrats that impeachment, as odd as it may seem, is a political gift to the president because it would just energize his base, right? It it gives them a new uh, common enemy, right? To fear that the Democrats are trying to just oust the president from office. There is also an argument to be made that it could, you know, impeachment could energize the Democratic base. Um, But look, Democrats don't want to hand the president a political gift while they are also trying to hold his feet to the fire. And it's why Pelosi and other Democrats are having to walk this incredibly tiny, tiny tightrope. Yeah, it it is. And and it seems like the pressure is is ratcheting up uh, again by the day. We'll see when the president is back stateside how that begins to change. All right, Mary, uh, we'll leave it there for now. And uh, uh, thank you for joining. And when we come back after the break, we are going to meet the man who wants to beat Lindsey Graham for Senate. We're going to meet Jamie Harrison, the brand new Democratic candidate for senator in South Carolina. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Pleased to be joined now on the program by Jamie Harrison, former chairman of the Democratic Party down in South Carolina and the newest entry into the Senate race down there, getting a lot of buzz with his decision to take on Lindsey Graham, now a Democratic candidate for Senate in South Carolina. Mr. Harrison, welcome. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. So so let's let's dive right in. Uh, this is an uphill battle, uh, as, as you know better than anyone. No Democrat has won statewide in your state of South Carolina, going back all the way to 2006. President Trump won the state by 16 points. Uh, Lindsey Graham's really never had a a, a very serious general election challenge. It's been a long time since he was tested, but we've seen him cozy up to Trump. So how does one, how do you beat a Republican incumbent senator, Lindsey Graham in particular, in South Carolina? You know, Rick, it it may have been more difficult to beat uh, Lindsey Graham 1.0, but this Lindsey Graham is a very different Lindsey Graham that than the people in South Carolina have sent to Washington, D.C. over the years. Uh, this is a guy who now, uh, and I think George Will says it, <laughs> said it perfectly, uh, he's a political windsock. 
he uh, flip-flops and basically tries to, to do what is in his best interest instead of the best interest of the people of South Carolina. Uh, he has said, you know, in one breath, this guy called the, the president a uh, race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. And then in the next breath, he says that he's not. Uh, you know, those are some powerful words, and you don't just uh, put those type of labels on someone unless you actually really mean it. And so the question is, who is this Lindsey Graham? What does he really stand for? Uh, and who is he fighting for? And ultimately, I think the answer is he's fighting for himself, and he's not fighting for the people of South Carolina because he hasn't used this advantage, he says, his friendship with the president for the benefit of, of our state. And so uh, I think this Lindsey Graham is going to be much easier to beat uh, than, than the old Lindsey Graham. The old Lindsey Graham is someone who I actually respected, who I had a, a, a lot of respect for and thought was he was a statesman, someone who could uh, rise above the fray and actually help to make, make a difference and, and really solve some of the nation's issues and problems. Uh, this new Lindsey Graham isn't that person. Although I'd argue that Lindsey Graham... 1.0, as you call him, or Lindsey Graham in the pre-Trump era or pre-pro-Trump era, would have been more vulnerable on the right. And there were there was always talk of primary challenges against him because of his uh, his uh, straying from party uh, from party conventional wisdom on things like immigration, for instance. And his friendship with John McCain probably didn't do him a lot of favors in the Republican Party. But isn't he stronger now with the Republican base, given how he's cozied up to the president? But Rick, isn't that just what people hate about politics? that you can't just be who you are, that you can't be true to yourself and to your core values, and that you change because of your own political best interests. I mean, th that's, that's what people really hate about politics, because they feel like, again, that these people are chameleons, that they are only looking at it for themselves. They're looking at their own power. I, you know, for me, I will be Jamie Harrison through and through. When I get elected, I will be the same person that people elect me to be, and if that is not good enough the next election, then, of course, the people will send me back home. Uh, and, and, and that should be fine. But it's, it's just shameful that you have these politicians that are constantly changing, you know, changing their skins because they want to stay in Washington, D.C. That's not why people send you to, to, to D.C. They send you there to actually help solve some of the issues and problems that they're dealing with on a day to day basis. So if Lindsey wants to, he feels like it's in his personal best interest, and, and he's actually said this. He, he said his two goals in this year is to be relevant and to win re-election, never uttering a word about actually fighting for the people of South Carolina who are suffering through so much, through the tariffs, through hospitals closing in rural communities, through uh, environmental justice issues in, in terms of bad water all across the state. Those are the things that people want us, uh, want our representatives to fight for. And Lindsay's not doing that. So let's talk about yourself and your, and your core values, as you put it. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of attention in the presidential race. You're no stranger to that being from South Carolina. You have primary candidates headed down to South Carolina all the time. Uh, Green New Deal, is that something you support? Do you support the Green New Deal? I mean, there are aspects of the Green New Deal that I think are, are really intriguing. And I can tell you, Living here in South Carolina, where we are right in Hurricane Alley, uh, these storms are getting bigger and more fierce. Uh, and the, the impact on our state and states like Florida and North Carolina are immense. And so we got to really be very serious about climate change. We are even seeing, because the climate is changing, that we're, the, the frequency of more sharks off of the coast of South Carolina. 
Um, in Florida, they have all of these various issues going on with their waters and the tides. There's some really dramatic issues that are going on. Tornadoes that we are seeing popping up, even in places like New York, um, uh, and, and more in a more frequent basis. There's some real fundamental issues that we have to take very, very seriously about the climate. And at the same time, let's figure out, are there some things that we can use in order to build new industries and in, in, uh, in our states and uh, create new economies? And so, uh, you know, I, I will definitely, if I'm in the United States Senate, take a look at all those policies like the Green New Deal and, 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 and other policies that other folks are looking at. Are I'm there things that go too far? The are, there th- this point. Do you, are there things in it that you think go too far based on what you know about it? I, I mean, I need to see what the impact is on, on various uh, uh, communities. You know, I, I am also very concerned. There are some communities uh, in the country where there are poor working folks that are working in them, where if you, you shut down something dramatically, I mean, in essence, it's a death sentence for that community and the people that live in it. And so I want to make sure that you know, whatever we do as we look at uh, transitioning our economy uh, and building a stronger, greener economy, that, that we're doing it in, in a respectful uh, uh, fashion so that the you know, communities, and particularly poor rural, rural communities, uh, have, a, have a way and a path forward so that you know, the, the folks there are getting additional training and, and the like. And so you know, I want to examine all of those things uh, and, and figure out what's the best path forward. You know, the one thing I, I do know, as the guy who used to count the votes for, for whipping, uh, you know, many times you'll have individuals that'll come up with you know, these grand programs and plans, and they look very differently by the time they get passed through, through the process. And so uh, I, I'm looking forward to being in the Senate and having those discussions and coming up with something which uh, allows us to really take bold steps forward in terms of uh, ending climate change, but at the same time building uh, great new economies and uh, new industries for the American people and the American workers. Because if we don't do it, then other countries are going to uh, take the lead in doing that uh, and because they are very much committed to uh, fighting climate change. And we need to make sure our commitment is just as high, if not more. Let's talk about health care. What about Medicare for all? You have several candidates, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, who are endorsing plans to, uh, as they've even said, abolish private insurance and, and bring everything yeah. under under a government-run health care. Is that something you're comfortable with? Well, you know, I, I'm more of the aspect, and, and I think I've heard a, a few other candidates talk about it. I would love to see some type of public option, and, and you could have Medicare for all as a public option. But I, I really, I'm a little hesitant to tell people who, who actually have health care that they like that you are going to be forced to go into one other type of health care. I, I think people should have the freedom and flexibility to do what they like and what's in the best interest of them and their families. Um, and because that's really, really, really important to have that. But at the same time, I think there has to be a, a safety net for all Americans. Everybody should have guaranteed health care. I, I fundamentally believe that. That is so, so important. Um, and, and the aspects of Medi- Medicare for All that I really like, are, are and these are aspects that, that were not in the Affordable Care Act, is a bolstered uh, uh, vision and mental and dental care. Those things are fundamental. My brother-in-law is a dentist, um, and he, he and I talk quite often about some of the residual health benefits of having d- good dental, uh, dental care. 
And there's so many people who are suffering in silence uh, because of dental issues that they haven't taken. You know, I was in an emergency room just recently, and this young guy next to us, he said he hadn't been to a dentist in 17 years. Um, and he was in extreme pain because of some dental issues. But that stuff has such implications on other parts of your health. And I want to make sure that we are we're giving giving those things enough attention. Uh, the veteran health is also something that we really, really need to do a better job of. Uh, there are a lot of lapses in terms of the veteran health care uh, program that we need to concentrate on. And so I, I love the aspects of making sure that we're fighting for health care for all. I love the aspects of, of making sure that there's uh, uh, dental and vision and mental health as well that's a part of that equation. But I also want to make sure that people have the flexibility that if they have something that they like, that they can keep it. Um, but we're still protecting the least of these, those in our society who, who can't afford these things, but we want to make sure we establish a baseline for them as well. One thing that both those issues, and, and there's others that you, you could lump in with it, um, abortion rights maybe among them, but you, there's, a, there's a concern that I've heard from a, a number of Democrats in the maybe more moderate lane of the party, even Joe Biden has given voice to this, that this party is moving too far left, and particularly in a state like South Carolina, is that... Is that a view that you share concern over? Do you see a, a leftward lurch that is going to backfire in places like South Carolina and also lots of purple states, maybe in the industrial Midwest? See, I try not to look at the world in that way because I don't think it's a, a difference of left and right. I think it's a, it's it's right or wrong. Um, you know, there's so many things that are just not right in the society and policies that are being pushed by people like Lindsey Graham. And we can go back to the issue of health care. Lindsey uh, offered this uh, health care bill called Graham-Cassidy. And under Graham-Cassidy, it was, and first of all, uh, the, the method uh, by which he came up with the bill was just uh, it's head-scratching. He and Rick Santorum were in a barbershop, and they came up with this idea about block-granting all of this money uh, or reducing the amount of money that's for the Affordable Care Act and using it as a block grant. That's not how you come up with comprehensive health care policy for the American people. But his bill is so horrible that, uh, one, it doesn't protect those with pre-existing conditions, and a quarter of the people in South Carolina have pre-existing condition, conditions. Two, uh, we've already had four of our rural hospitals to close. Under his bill, probably even more would close. Uh, and, that, and that's a death sentence for folks. And, and it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you voted for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, or you vote for Lindsey Graham or myself. If you're in a rural community where a hospital is closed, instead of it taking 10 or 15 minutes for you to get to the hospital and it takes you 25, 35, or 45 minutes, that is almost a death sentence for certain ailments. And so that's, that's where I'm really at. Is, is that right or is it wrong? It's not about a left or right thing or Democrat-Republican thing. And I think some politicians like Lindsey, who's been in Washington for so long, they like to get people caught up in, in, into looking at the world in that frame. But it really is fundamentally, what is the right thing to do for the American people, for the people of South Carolina, and what's the wrong thing to do? And right now, uh, Lindsay's doing more wrong than right. So put on a couple of your old hats here as a, as a former top aide to uh, Jim Clyburn, the, uh, the House Majority Whip, and also the former chairman of the state Democratic Party. A lot of action in South Carolina, as I mentioned. Who has the inside track right now among the 2020ers? Uh, well, I, in addition to uh, being a former whip person, I'm also DNC chair, uh, associate chair. 
So uh, I, I can't put my finger on the scale for anybody, but I can tell you there are a lot of great candidates right now, Rick. Um, I love the messaging that is going on. They are actually, you know, my advice to them coming into South Carolina was you can't expect the people to come to you. You have to go to the people and you have to go to where they are and you have to talk to them about the issues that they're dealing with right now. And I've seen a lot of evolution in some of these candidates just coming here into South Carolina. Uh, and they're doing a good job. I mean, uh, talking about a variety of issues, you know, from Elizabeth Warren talking about the student loans uh, issues and the student loan crisis to Cory Booker talking about building wealth through the baby bonds issues, uh, Kamala Harris and her uh, her teacher pay initiative. And Joe Biden has just been talking about the strength of America. And I think all of those, ask, I, I really wish I could roll them all into one person and they'd be some super uh, – uh, conglomerate, <laughs> uh, but but they're they're doing a fantastic job, and any one of them, I would be proud uh, to have serve as our president. Quickly on on the DNC front, you ran for state party chair. You have a leadership post working with Tom Perez. The DNC is getting some heat for its debate criteria. Some of the candidates saying it's an artificial measure to look at the number of donations, and that uh, particularly the the effort to to to, to raise the bar for two percent, one hundred thirty thousand donations for the debate that'll be on ABC in September. Uh, is unfair and artificial. What's your view on that? Is this a is this a fair set of thresholds? I think so. You know, I, I work with Tom and, and the team of the DNC on on how we did debates and pre- preparation for the convention going forward. And, and listen, there was a lot of criticism from uh, you know some justified, some unjustified for the last election cycle. And we wanted to make sure that people felt that it was fair, that it was transparent. But at the same time, we're in the business of of picking the next Democratic nominee to be president of the United States. And and we want to make sure that the American people really have an opportunity to see these uh, candidates, to vet these candidates, uh, and pick the best person to represent the party. Uh, Having a field of 20-some-odd folks going into a presidential election is a lot. And it's hard for, for folks to, to kind of winnow down and, and see who's the best. And to be quite honest, being on a debate stage with 10 people uh, is a lot as well. Nobody, where everybody gets about five minutes to talk, um, that's not enough in order to really make a, a, an informed decision. And so we wanted to make sure that early into the process, everyone got an equal opportunity to really make their case uh, to build out their operations, to go across the states, and then to get on that debate stage and, and have a moment where they break out. But after a period of time, if you're still not breaking out, uh, then we need to really you know, allow the American people, allow the Democrats across the country uh, to, to, to hear from some of those folks who are gaining traction, uh, who are making moves, and, and, and ha- hearing more substance from them. And so I, I can understand if I were in that situation as a candidate, I, I would be a little, uh, I would probably be a little nervous about it too, whether or not I'm going to make the cut. But in the end of the day, it's not about the individual candidates. It's about the American people and, and it's the Democrats in this party. And we want to make sure that we're doing what's in their best interest. Finally, Jamie Harrison, I saw on Twitter uh, that you had a, a childhood dream of sorts come true. Uh, you were around my age, so I get it, the Star Wars generation. But Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself, has said he's found a new favorite Harrison uh, and has endorsed, <laughs> has endorsed your campaign. So what's next? Are you, are you planning on anything with, uh, with, with Luke or, or anyone else from the, from the Star Wars universe uh, as, uh, as your oh, campaign uh, starts to heat up? <laughs> 
Well, not 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 at this moment. Uh, I would love to do an event with with Mark. I I think it was so fantastic. I woke up on Sunday uh, and I looked at my uh, uh, Twitter feed and I and I really wanted to jump up and scream uh, when I saw that Mark uh, actually wrote something. And it was really really kind and very nice of him. But we've gotten so much. Uh, so much energy from not only folks outside of South Carolina, but in South Carolina as well. And, uh, I mean, Shonda Rhimes, uh, you know, Rosie O'Donnell, just so many people, Don Cheadle, um, and you know, it's great people that I've looked up to for a long time uh, that are very passionate about this country and, and which direction it's going in, and that they see that it's, you know, it's, it's past time to send Lindsay home and, and send somebody to Washington, D.C. who will actually fight uh, for the people of South Carolina and the American people, and and Rick, I just my my uh, my campaign manager would 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 hit me upside the head if I didn't say that if folks want to join me, they can go to jamieharrison.com, dot uh, com, j a i m e harrison dot com uh, to learn more about the campaign and, and what we're trying to do to to really change uh, the direction of South Carolina and the country. Well, Jamie Harrison, we appreciate your time here. I'd also give a, a, a plug to the book you wrote a couple of years ago with my good friend Amos Sneed, uh, Climbing the Hill, a great tutorial on, on, how to, on how to start to build a career in politics. Uh, it was a fun read, and, and uh, Democrat and Republican getting together in that case. Uphill battle for you, I, I know, in South Carolina, but we appreciate you, uh, you joining us now that uh, you're in this race. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. And we should note that we invited Senator Lindsey Graham onto the program, and his uh, his spokesperson in the Senate office said he was unavailable uh, for that interview. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Thanks to Mary Bruce and our entire team, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, and of course, the man behind the controls, Trevor Hastings. We'll be back next time with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.